Seven wonders of the ancient world are typically listed as follows. The Great Pyramid of Giza. Oh, you want a picture, okay. Which which is the tallest of the ancient wonders at 481 feet and is really just a a giant tomb uh, of Pharaoh Khufu or Cheops. By the way, it's the only one of the seven still around right outside of Cairo. The, the hanging gardens of Babylon were built by King Nebuchadnezzar for his homesick Median queen. Now, these pictures may look a little blurry. They're kind of, they're kind of old. I think they were taken by an iPhone 4S. <laughs> the, the, the Colossus of Rhodes was located at the entrance to a harbor on the island of Rhodes. It's actually a statue to the island's patron god, Helios, or the sun god. The lighthouse of Alexandria was built on the delta of the Nile River and was the second highest of the ancient wonders at 330 feet. That's like 30 stories. This thing was huge. The, the, the temple of Artemis was located in Ephesus, the shrine to that city's patron goddess, Artemis, also known as Diana. You may remember that Paul had a run-in with its followers uh, in Ephesus in Acts 19. Statue of Zeus was a large seated figure, 43 feet tall, built for the temple of Zeus in Olympia. And then the, this one's kind of interesting, the mausoleum, where's that word come from? The mausoleum of Halicarnassus, which, is, which was built in modern day Western Turkey. It's about 150 feet tall and it was the burial place of Mausolus. That's where we get the name, Mausolus, a, per, a Persian satrap or a governor. How would you like your name to go down forever in history as a burial place, Mausolus, Mausoleum? I'm thinking Scatorium doesn't work for me. (laughs) Indeed, these were all architectural wonders. Many of the lists, as I looked them up, contained other such ancient wonders, kind of of uh, an honorable honorable mention category. Solomon's temple makes most of those lists. Built atop Mount Moriah, where Abraham is said to have offered Isaac, the the first temple was built in the 10th century BC. I love this picture, except for that large lady in the background is a little disturbing. It's just a model. It was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar, but a second temple was built 70 years later after the Babylonian captivity. Of course, King Herod then did an extensive remodel of this temple, which took almost 50 years. So this is the second temple. Some call Herod's the third, whatever. The temple, this temple was also destroyed, um, this time by the uh, Romans under General Titus in 70 AD. And most Jews and many dispensational Christians are awaiting the construction of a third temple. But, but, but back to the original temple. It was stunning. Moving from the outside in, uh, it contained the court of the Gentiles. That would be where we'd hang out. The court of women, the court of Israel, the court of the priests, the, moving into the holy place, and then, of course, the most holy place. The most holy place, or the holy of holies, contained, we know this, the Ark of the Covenant. That is the Ark of the Old Covenant within which was a jar of manna, Aaron's budding rod, and of course, 
the two tablets of stone upon which are inscribed the Ten Commandments. It's rather amazing that I was able to secure this picture. <laughs> the, the, the ark was topped with a lid called the mercy seat upon which sat two golden cherubim. The, the very presence of God was thought to reside above that seat in His Shekinah glory when it descended um, to the temple on the day of its dedication. Tens of thousands, I think it's actually 144,000 animals were sacrificed that day. You see, the blood flowed freely. By the way, it's suggested that the gold and silver alone in Solomon's temple was valued in today's dollars at over 216 billion with a B, 216 billion dollars. The richest person in the world today is, anybody know? Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO of Amazon, and he's worth about half that which means Solomon's temple is worth twice Amazon. Oh, and by the way, that was only the gold and silver in the temple. That figure does not contain the rest of the precious metals, stones, materials, and by the way, the land upon which it sat. (laughs) Think about that. Could you place a price tag on the temple mount today where the Dome of the Rocks sits as Jews and Muslims fight over that piece of land. I wonder what kind of comps an Israeli real estate agent could get for that. It would no doubt be priceless. Well, as impressive as the structure was, what, what went on in the temple was equally impressive. We remember, for example, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur to offer sacrifices, first for himself and his household, that is his family, and then for all of the people. And then he would sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat between the law of Moses below in the golden box in the ark, and below was the law of Moses, and above was the presence of God between the two cherubim. In other words, the blood covered the law which had been broken by both the high priest and the people, acting as a barrier, if you will, between God above and the broken law below. And the blood flowed freely, you see. But it wasn't just the Day of Atonement on which sacrifices were made. The people brought daily sacrifices for worship, for thanksgiving, for guilt and sin offerings as the blood flowed freely. In fact, another major annual festival of the Jews was the Passover. They observed it per God's instructions in commemoration of their deliverance from Egypt. After, remember that 10th plague? We talked about it last week, the death of the firstborn. You see, Moses had instructed every family to sacrifice a lamb without spot or blemish to sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and then on the header board that called the lentil. Um, That evening when the death angel passed through the land, killing the firstborn of every house to include in Pharaoh's house, when the death angel would pass over any house, excuse me, when the death angel went through the land, he would pass over any house which had the blood of the lamb. 
by the first century as Jews, per the law, traveled from all over the then known world to Jerusalem for the Passover, the Jewish historian Josephus records, this is amazing, that about 250,000, that's a quarter million lambs would be sacrificed. Now everyone agrees that that is a gross exaggeration, but even if the number was tens of thousands, probably more, the blood flowed freely. So much so it is said the Brook Kidron to the east of the, of the temple at the bottom of the Kidron Valley between the Mount of Olives and, and the temple. The, the brook was said to actually turn red from all of the blood. But again, it wasn't just the Day of Atonement and, and the Passover. There were daily and weekly and annual sacrifices offered by the Levitical priests for centuries. And let's not forget, this was prescribed by God himself under the old covenant. You see, God had given the the law of Moses comprised of 613 commands. At the same time, however, knowing that they would inevitably and invariably break the law, God also gave them the Levitical priesthood and the entire system of sacrifices. You see, it was through those sacrifices that their sins would be atoned and they would find forgiveness through the freely flowing blood. And along comes Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. He would do this through a one-time sacrifice for all time for all his people. And not through the sacrifice of animals, not even tens of thousands of animals, but through one sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. You see, he was God in the flesh, the perfect son of God and the perfect son of man who would live a perfect life and offer his own life as a sacrifice, as an atonement, not for his own sins, for he had none but for the sins of his people. And and so, he he would not come of the line of Aaron. That is, he would not be a Levitical priest. No, no, no. He would come from a royal line, the royal line of Judah, of the house of David. He would come as a king. But, But not only that, he would be of a different priestly line, a line much superior to Aaron and his descendants. Jesus would be of the line of Melchizedek, who was both a priest and a, and a king. He was Melchizedek, a king of righteousness and king of peace. And Jesus, the Messiah, as king, would be the same. Are you beginning to see how this incredibly ties together? This is what we have been learning in our study of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Abraham. He's better than Levi and the entire Levitical priesthood. He's better than any and every sacrifice ever offered. In fact, he's better than the whole kit and caboodle of them. In fact, he brought a better covenant with better promises and a better hope. So in chapter 7, we saw how Jesus was of the Melchizedekian order, which was superior to Abraham and thereby Levi. After all, the, the old covenant, the law of Moses, and even the Levitical system of sacrifices could make no one, no one, write it down, no one eternally perfect. If it could, there would have been no need for another priesthood. 
And so Jesus came. His priesthood came with an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And as such, Jesus becomes, the, the, the result of that, Jesus becomes the, the guarantee of a better covenant. <laughs> it's the new covenant that he brought in his blood. But it must flow freely. Further, the old priests of the Levitical line existed in great numbers because they kept dying. They couldn't continue their priestly work of intercession. Jesus, however, continues since by his resurrection, he holds his priesthood, the Melchizedekian priesthood, permanently. And so, being a priest forever, conclusion of the matter, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. This is glorious truth. A great high priest is perfect. He's holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He offered himself as the perfect sacrifice once for all. By his suffering, he has been made the perfect high priest forever. No one else need apply. And so being a priest forever, he is able to save forever us. Bringing us to our text today as we arrive at Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 8, look at the first seven verses with me this morning. Now the main point in what has been said that I've been talking about for weeks The main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not not man. That's That's a little odd. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest, that is Jesus, also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Oh, no. Since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. He didn't do it that way. You see, they just serve as a copy. Don't miss the words. And a shadow. Uh, of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But, But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted by better promises. (laughs) For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would not... Uh, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Now, now at first glance, this can be a bit confusing. But I remind you that the whole letter is reminding us that Jesus is better. Better than what? Well, like everything. His priesthood is better. His sacrifice is better. And now, get it, incredibly, his tabernacle or his temple where he offers the sacrifice is infinitely better. Understand that. It was the purpose of my introduction. As amazing as the tabernacle and later the temple were, all that silver, all of that gold, all of those precious materials, they were just mere copies. They were shadows. They were a pattern. 
of the heavenly temple where Jesus' eternal sacrifice has been made once for all, forever offered. You see, just like everything else, the old covenant, the law, the priesthood, the sacrifices, they were all simply types pointing to something much greater to come. And Jesus brought a better covenant with better promises. Are you beginning to see everything about Jesus and his work is infinitely better? Let's look briefly at the text this morning with this outline. Heavenly um, high priest, a heavenly sanctuary, and a heavenly ministry with with the emphasis on the word heavenly. It's not earthly. It's, thank God, it's, it's heavenly. It's better. The author has been arguing his point since actually the end of chapter 4. There he had written as he introduced this concept of Jesus being the high priest. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who is it? Well, it's Jesus, the Son of God. Since we have that, let us hold fast our confession. He introduces to us the idea of Jesus being a heavenly high priest. And don't miss that he, he, passed, he passed through the heavens, which he later likens to the veil. We'll come back to that. From there, he started chapter 5, talking about how high priests were appointed and how they offered sacrifices for, for people and for their own sins. And then he, then he told us how Jesus was appointed a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Oh, and he had a lot of things to say about that. But he had to take an aside and gently shame his readers at the end of chapter 5. You ought to be teaching these truths by now, but you have need that someone teach you. It's time to grow up, and he gives you a chapter to do it. You see, he took time to warn uh, them and us with the most severe warning in the book. If you fall away from, uh, from all that you have known, it will be impossible to renew you to repentance. But, but he doesn't leave us uh, trembling in our boots. He doesn't leave us there. He encourages us with God's promise of perseverance. You'll make it. I'm confident in you. So, so then he, he, he jumps back to the main topic. Jesus is a better priesthood. He's is of a better priesthood. It's better than the Levitical priesthood. And through that priesthood, he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for sins. Since the old covenant... Don't miss it. The old covenant, any covenant besides this covenant, could make no one perfect. You see, it's weak because, well, because of us. And therefore, it is ultimately useless. The main point of all of that, chapter 8, is we have such a high priest who is perfect. And he has offered the perfect sacrifice, praise God. Not, not only that, he has taken his seat at the right hand of the, uh, the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The, ma- the majesty of the heavens is simply a, a, a way of speaking of God in loftiest of, of terms. But don't miss where Jesus is seated, at the right hand of God. That is a place of highest honor. And, and, and then we remember the author's primary text throughout this passage, it stretches all the way back to Chapter 4, his primary text has been Psalm 110, and we spent a lot of time looking at verse 4, but the psalm actually begins, oddly enough, in verse 1. 
which reads, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your scepter, Messiah, from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. This was clearly a messianic psalm. Everybody understood that. The God, God says to Messiah, who we later find out is his son, Jesus, sit in my right hand and rule in the midst of your enemies. And Jesus, having defeated the enemy, remember this earlier in the book, who held us captive and kept us in slavery to fear. He delivered us from that, defeated him, having defeated sin and the grave by his resurrection. He is seated at the Father's right hand. Listen to me very carefully, ruling and reigning his people. He is ruling you right now, right now. further. Point two, the author tells us not only did Jesus offer himself as a sacrifice, yes, he did that on a physical cross on earth. That sacrifice was ultimately effective in a heavenly sanctuary, in a true tabernacle, that word is tent, which the Lord pitched, not man. You see, Jesus didn't offer him to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple and sprinkle his blood on the Ark of the Covenant. That's the old covenant, you see. He had something much better. This passage has resulted in all kinds of speculative and actually well, I would call them silly interpretations. For example, it has been suggested that at the foot of the actual cross was a heavenly basin catching Jesus' physical blood, which he later took to the heavenly sanctuary to offer for the sins of his people. It's not what the author says. There's no indication that that actually happened. Let's look closely at the text. Jesus is now a minister. That is, he is serving as a high priest in the sanctuary, in the true tabernacle pitched in heaven. So, so all that to say, it is a heavenly sanctuary. Now, what was the ultimate purpose of the tabernacle in the wilderness? It was the place of God's presence, the place where priests offered atoning sacrifices for the sins of the people. It was the place then where people met God. That's what verses 3 and 4 say. For every, every earthly priest, Levitical priest, is appointed to offer both gifts, that is offerings like thank offerings, etc., and sacrifices, guilt and, and sin offerings. So it was necessary for the high priest, this high priest, to have something to offer, namely gifts and sacrifices. Now, if Jesus had been on earth, he reminds us he wouldn't have been a priest at all. Why? Why not? Because earthly priests were appointed according to the law. And they were Levitical priests of the tribe of Levi, of the line of Aaron. We've seen that. Jesus was neither. He would not have offered sacrifices according to the law. Oh, no, no, no. That was ultimately useless. And so we found that a new covenant, not the old one, a new one was needed, and Jesus fit the bill. Look at verse 5. Who, 
That is speaking this of Levitical priests and the, the, who offered sacrifices according to the law. These Levitical priests serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses warned by, was warned by God when he was sent, uh, when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, God says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. That's straight out of Exodus 25, verse 40. At this time, Moses is actually on Mount Sinai receiving instructions for the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, the altar, etc. We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come because the author does. At the same time that he's receiving these instructions about the tabernacle, he's also receiving instructions about the sacrifices and the priesthood. That's Exodus 28. But God stops in the middle of all of that to say, "When Moses, listen up. When you build the tabernacle, make sure it is according to the pattern shown you. What does that mean? Does that mean that God showed Moses some architectural drawings? Or that he showed him some little model mock-up like I had on the screen? Perhaps. But most suggest, I, I kind of lean, lean toward this one, that God somehow gave Moses a vision of heaven which was God's dwelling place. And the tabernacle and its specific plans spelled out on the mountain symbolically represented corresponding heavenly realities. Don't miss that. They represent corresponding heavenly realities. In other words, I want to be clear. I am not sure that there is a heavenly Ark of the Covenant or a heavenly table of showbread or a heavenly altar of incense, etc. Rather, those physical things symbolically represent heavenly spiritual realities. So, he says, these must be specifically produced. Moses, follow the pattern. This is important. Build it like the heavenly sanctuary, which is where what? God dwells. And we remember earlier the author, for example, likened the veil of the temple to the heavens, which separated us from the very presence of God. But Jesus passed through the veil, symbolized by the uh, renting of the temple, uh, uh, the temple veil from top to bottom. He passed through the heavens and is seated at the Father's right hand where he what? Where he serves as a mediator for us of the new covenant so that we can draw near to God. That's the point. We have such a high priest. This leads us to our third point, the heavenly ministry that he is engaged in, verses 6 and 7. Look at those with me. But now he, that is Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry. Well, more excellent than who? Or more excellent than what? what? What ministry? More excellent than the Levitical priesthood and the Levitical priests and their ministry. Well, why? How? By as much as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which is, has been enacted on better promises. Listen, listen up. All of this for weeks has been building and building and building to this text and the verses that follow. The new covenant 
is the one that Jesus came to bring. Why? Verse 7, for if that old covenant, that first covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Listen, if the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices, if that worked, we wouldn't have needed something else that didn't work. It was faulty. Not because the law was bad. The law was not bad. The law was good. It was, part, it was an expression of God's very character. But we, the people who were party to the covenant, were bad. We were unable to keep the Mosaic law. And so we needed God to step in and to do something different. Or we would be eternally lost. We needed him to step in and bring us a new covenant. And that new covenant, he says, is built on, and a better covenant is built on better promises. What promises? That is next week. I'm so excited about next week, I can't stand it. Cam told you, make sure you don't miss, don't miss next week. I've already got my introduction written. <laughs> we are going to see that the author quotes Jeremiah 31 and, and, and the and the promises of the new covenant and all that means to us as followers of Jesus, the new covenant that he brought in his freely flowing blood. It's wonderful. It's glorious. And it's next week. Let me close then with this idea of covenant been using that word a lot in the recent weeks. And as I said last week, this particular author uses the term 17 times in his book, considerably more than any other author. In fact, 14 times more. What is a covenant? Simply defined, a covenant is an agreement between two parties, two, two people, if you will. You, usually the covenant goes like this. If you do this, I will do this. In other words, there are commitments or promises made to each other within the covenant. These are my responsibilities. These are your responsibilities. And usually there are also consequences spelled out for failure to meet the commitments within the covenant. When you think about that just a minute, because he gave us the old covenant and he says in, I think it's Exodus 19, keep this covenant, keep my law. Did we do it? We are covenant breakers. We should also think of covenants as being binding. That's why they're not called contracts, they're called covenants. When you enter into a covenant, you are binding yourself to its stipulations. All right. All that Moses has said, we will do. Right. See, here was the problem with the old covenant. God gave the Mosaic law, said, keep it. And the problem is they could not. Again, not because the law was bad, because the people were bad. So God instituted the Levitical sacrificial system, which was always intended to point to Christ because the law, the system, the priests, the sacrifices, the blood that flowed freely from bulls and goats, the holy of holies, could never take away sin forever. We needed something better. Enter 
Jesus. And so Christ brought a new covenant, a better covenant with better promises and a better hope. We're gonna talk about that next week. Better promises, we'll talk about that next week. Here's what I want you to take with you this morning. God bound himself by oath to a new covenant by which all of the responsibilities of that covenant lay with him and his mediator since we could never do it. That's why it's better. The promises of the new covenant are promises to us through the gospel. It's glorious. Let's stand for prayer. And so, Father, chapters of Hebrews, weeks of study, all lead to this. We were helpless. We were hopeless. We could enter into a covenant with you, but we could never keep it. And so you brought us a new covenant by which you met all of its demands in the very blood of your son. Undeserving as we are, we thank you for rich grace for sweet mercy. We thank you for saving us because of your son. In his name we pray, amen.